Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is. It's a weekly podcast where we take a closer look at popular songs from the rock and roll era and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call and man, I'm coming in hot this week. Hey, don't forget to check out the website, howgooditis.com, where you can find some stuff that I found interesting and some other stuff that doesn't necessarily fit well into the podcast. Ooh, and the artwork for this week's entry on the website was provided to me by friend of the show, Connie Paulson. She says she doesn't really sell her work anymore, but maybe if you ask her real pretty, who knows? You can find Connie if you go follow and like the show's Facebook page which has some other stuff that keeps everyone busy. You can find that over at facebook.com slash ow, how good it is pod. A couple of weeks ago, when I was talking about the Rolling Stones satisfaction, I got to thinking about Mick Jagger's comment about so many people being upset about the line, trying to make some girl that they completely overlooked the next line, which is in fact a little bit more explicit in its meaning. And it occurred to me that there is another song, which we're uh, going to talk about today, that practically oozes the sex and nobody really thinks anything of it. Uh, yeah. But first, let us turn back the clock to mid-December of 1974. Aerosmith had released two albums by that point, and they had a minor hit with the song uh, Dream On. Uh, now we have these memories of Dream On being kind of a big deal, but the song got airplay on the rock stations, not the pop stations. Dream On only peaked at number 59 on the Billboard chart, so they still weren't really a headline act at this point. So that mid-December day, 1974, Aerosmith was uh, in Honolulu, Hawaii. They were preparing for a concert as the opening act for the Guess Who. Guitarist Joe Perry has said in interviews that at the time he was really into a band called The Meters, and that's what you're listening to now. They were a funk group out of New Orleans that was active around that time. And Perry asked Aerosmith's drummer, Joey Kramer, to play what they call straight twos and fours so he could fool around with a riff. Now, straight twos and fours is your basic rock beat with the drummer hitting the hi-hat on the eighth notes, right? One and two and three and four and the snare on the two and the four beats. Now, Kramer disputes this next part, but several others have said that uh, what happened then was singer Steven Tyler came out from the dressing room and he took over on the drums playing something just a little bit different. And the two sounds fused together with Tyler coming up with the basic boom da bidom dee da beat and Kramer brightening it up with the hi-hat figure. They played around with it for a bit and Tyler was just kind of scatting nonsense words to give themselves some idea of how the cadence of the lyrics would go. So at that point they had a beat and they had a guitar riff that Perry was still noodling around with but they really didn't have much else and for whatever reason they put it aside for a while. Fast forward a few months and Aerosmith is at the record plant studio in New York City recording material for their third album, Toys in the Attic. Uh, they found themselves just a little bit short on material. They'd written three or four songs for the album, and they were kind of doing the rest of them in the studio. So they dusted off the tune they'd come up with in Hawaii. The problem was it still didn't have a title or any lyrics. They were temporarily stuck, so they took a break from recording, and they went to Times Square to see a movie. The movie they saw? Young Frankenstein. And on their way back to the studio, they kept laughing about Marty Feldman's character, telling Gene Wilder to follow him, specifically suggesting that Wilder imitate his limp. Walk this way. This way. Producer Jack Douglas suggested that it might make a good title for the song, but they still needed lyrics. That night in the hotel, Tyler wrote some lyrics for the song, but he discovered that he had left the notepad in the taxi cab on the way to the studio. Or 
Maybe he was just stalling for some time, as his bandmates accused him of doing. In an article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal in 2015, Tyler said, I must have been stoned. All the blood drained out of my face, but nobody believed me. They thought I never got around to writing them. So he took a cassette tape with the instrumental track on it and a portable tape player with a set of headphones, and he went into the stairwell. He grabbed a few pencils, but no paper, so he started writing the lyrics up on the wall. And after a couple of hours, he came back downstairs uh, for a legal pad, and he copied down what he'd written on the wall. Now, Joe Perry thought that the lyrics were great, especially since Tyler, who is a drummer at heart, injects a percussion element into his words. Uh, Perry says, the words have to tell a story, but for Stephen, they also have to have a bouncy feel for flow. Then he searches for words that have a double entendre, and... Uh, that comes out of the blues tradition. Now, Perry liked to wait for Tyler to record his vocal before doing the guitar part so that he could work around the vocals. Um, but as it happened, uh, Tyler was interested in having Perry record first for pretty much the same reason, uh, so he could work his vocals around the guitar. After a little bit of back and forth, finally, Tyler did the vocals first, and then Perry dubbed the guitar in later on. Now, the lyrics are a pretty straightforward story of how a high school boy loses his virginity. But they're delivered in a rapid-fire style with a lot of emphasis on internal rhymes like was it me she was fooling because she knew what she was doing. So I think that delivery, it, it, it means that, that some of the meaning gets kind of lost in the sauce for a while. But the story breaks down like this. We start with the narrator describing himself as a backstroke lover, meaning he's masturbating, and his father busts him at it. And that's the opening of the song, and it gets better from there. One fine day, he meets up with a cheerleader along with her sister and her cousin, and they have themselves some glorious sexual fun. The line, walk this way, is supposed to be this experienced girl telling him where to put his finger, that is, where to walk. Tyler points out in the book Walk This Way, which is their autobiography, that while it's clearly a sexual song, the girl is in control the entire time. The song was one of two hit singles scored by Aerosmith in the 1970s, the other one being a re-release of Dream On. It went on to peak at number seven on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, and as far as I can tell, it didn't chart at all in the UK, at least not this version. So let's fast forward to 1985. Rap act Run DMC was recording their Raising Hell album and producer Rick Rubin pulled out the Toys in the Attic album and suggested that they record a cover. Now, Run DMC had worked with the song before. They just used those first few seconds of the song on a loop so they could freestyle over it. Until then, they had no idea what the entire song sounded like. All they knew was what the first few seconds sounded like. Jam Master Jay was open to the idea of a cover, but uh, Joseph Simmons and Daryl McDaniels weren't, and they didn't like the idea of rapping Aerosmith's lyrics. McDaniels told Rolling Stone magazine in 2009, We said, this is hillbilly gibberish. But Ruben, with some help from Russell Simmons, convinced them to do it. And even after recording the song with Aerosmith, they still didn't want the record to be released as a single. But it was, in fact, released in the summer of 1986.
boy, were they in for a surprise because it started getting airplay all over the hip-hop stations and the rock stations. Run DMC got catapulted into the mainstream and it encouraged other artists to create songs that were a hybrid of one genre and another. And this version actually charted higher than the original. It peaked at number four on the Billboard chart and it peaked at number eight in the UK, making it one of the first big hip-hop singles on that side of the Atlantic. In addition, it marked a huge comeback for uh, Aerosmith since they'd been lying kind of low because of issues with drug and alcohol addiction. Now, they had released the Done With Mirrors album in 1985, but it didn't do very well. But their next album in 1987, titled Permanent Vacation and featuring the track Dude Looks Like a Lady, started a string of multi-platinum albums for the band. And by the way, go to the website and check out the video for the Run DMC version because it's a lot of fun. It was one of the first hip-hop hybrid videos to get a lot of rotation on MTV, and it's one of the videos that most people will cite as being among the best in the medium. You will notice, however, that Steven Tyler and Joe Perry are the only Aerosmith members to appear in the video, and that's because Run DMC couldn't afford to use the entire Aerosmith band. Now, there have been a few other covers of the song as well. In uh, 1997, a band called The String Cheese Incident, that's the band's name, they covered the song on their live album. And it starts out pretty faithful to the original, but wait for it. There you go. You got to dig that rock bluegrass hybrid sound. And in uh, 2007, the official charity single for Comic Relief was this version, which was recorded by two British female pop bands together, Girls Aloud and Sugar Babes. It's got a bunch of changes added to it, and clearly the beat is speeded up, so it's got a little bit more of a dance pop feel to it. It frankly didn't get a lot of love from the critics, but it did enter the UK singles chart at number one with a rapid drop out of the top ten within three weeks. The following year placed second in a poll by Total Guitar magazine uh, in their search for the worst cover song of all time. The winner? Yeah, I'm not going to play it here. You have to go find it yourself. But it is ACDC's You Shook Me All Night Long, performed by Celine Dion. And that is it for this edition of How Good It Is. Hey, if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at howgooditispod. You can also check out and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod and go check out Connie Paulson stuff, okay? Or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where I throw in a few extra bits for you. Next time around, we're going to find out how good it is to be killed softly with this song. Wait, what? Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time.